0: You're listening to The Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 12th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio.
1: Is there a US-Iran game plan to avoid regional contagion? What's the latest in the run-up to elections in Taiwan? I'm Georgina Godwin. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests Jason Rezaian, Christy O'Grady, Gunnar Grunlid and Julia Lassica will discuss the prisons in Norway. Spoiler alert, they've been compared to holiday camps. Why Eurovision is such a huge deal in Ukraine and how Monocle Radio is preparing for the World Economic Forum. Stay tuned. All that coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Georgina Godwin. The United States and the United Kingdom have launched a series of strikes on Yemen against the Iran aligned Houthi rebels who've been targeting international shipping in the Red Sea. Iran says it condemns the attacks, warning that it will fuel insecurity and instability in the region. Well, I'm joined now down the line from the US Capitol by Jason Rezayan, who's a global opinions columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, Jason, you wrote an op ed. in in the Washington Post, urging the Biden administration to exercise restraint in dealing with Houthi rebels, lest this lead to a full-out confrontation with the rebel group's backers. Uh, That's, of course, Iran. Well, since then, both Washington and Westminster have taken action. I wonder if you could bring us up to speed on the latest.
2: Georgina, thanks for uh, the, the time and having me on. Look, I, I think that we are still in a wait-and-see pattern uh, about how Iran and the Houthis will retaliate uh, against this, this attack um, by the U.S. and the U.K. on Houthi uh, targets, uh, but the fact of the matter is that they've been getting away with uh, some very serious um, uh, attacks on, on, on ships going through the Red Sea. And disrupting international trade in such a way that no one could really accept so it was very um, sort of expected and i think reasonable for the uk and the us to, to take this move but it's such a tenuous situation and the middle east is already a tinderbox that tinderbox the borders seem to be expanding by the day uh, and ultimately you know, my argument is that um, the conflict that started 7th is not primarily about the US and Iran, but it risks becoming that very quickly.
1: Mm, I mean, I wonder if you think it can still be contained. Does taking on the Houthis necessarily mean the involvement of Iran?
2: I think it does. uh, But I do think that Iran is in an incredibly weak state uh, vis-a-vis the the past uh, couple of decades. Their economy is in shambles, their military um, equipment is very dilapidated and Hold what they have working in their favor are two things. Uh, they understand the neighborhood, the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, better than uh, the U.S. and our allies do. Uh, they also have the ability to attack um, targets in asymmetrical ways, ways that we haven't really prepared ourselves to defend against. So the drone attacks that we hear so much about, um, the taken uh, by, by the, the Houthis against targets in the Red Sea, or, or even uh, in the war uh, in Ukraine. Um, it's not that the drones that Iran is making are so uh, high-tech and advanced. It's that, that they are actually low-tech, flying literally under the radar in many cases, and they're swarming the scene with, with many of these drones that we don't have defense mechanisms to, to counteract. And, mm. and this is the challenge.
1: So I wonder how willing Iran itself is to engage.
2: I think they've singled over the last couple of months that they really do not want a wider war. And as I've argued multiple times, I don't see how it could be in their best interest to engage in a protracted military confrontation with the West. Uh, but I do think that their their expectation is the... Uh, the US and our allies will not react in, in major kinetic ways. I think that assumption on their part is being tested right now. Uh, and and you know, if you are looking at it on paper, uh, Iran as, and its proxies do not have the, the might or um, resources to put up a long fight. So I, I don't think that it's in their best interest. Uh, I think ultimately they'll stand down. But, but how much
1: control does Iran have over its proxies, the Houthis, Hamas and Hezbollah?
2: Each one's different. And I would say that in, in the case of Hamas, uh, as we saw on October 7th, and all of the intelligence that we've seen since, uh, Iran was not necessarily aware uh, of the, the, um, the terrorist attacks that were going to take place on that day. Uh, And I think if they were, they probably would have uh, cautioned against it. With Hezbollah and Houthi, Iran is much more involved. They rely on Iran for for material financial military intelligence support. And I think uh, specifically with Hezbollah, uh, they are um, uh, beholden to to Iran and always have been. Houthis are uh, a semi-independent actor, uh, but ultimately – Uh, we'll do Iran's bidding when when the the moment calls for it.
1: Mm. So, Jason, to sum up, what would be the most sensible course of action by the Biden administration and the Pentagon when it comes to keeping the Red Sea open and safe for shipping without risking an all-out confrontation with Iran?
2: Specifically targeting the vessels, the installations of the Houthis that are uh, undertaking these attacks on ships in in the Red Sea, also uh, financial measures against the leaders of Iran, the Houthis, and others, and the seizure of their assets wherever they exist in the world. Now, this is something that, that has been talked about quite a bit in recent years, and you see sanctions on on Iranian officials. The truth is, Iranian officials and, and their proxies are not, you know, running around London or New York saying, "I own this building" or "I, I have these assets." We know that they these assets and they have proxy investors. I would argue that we have to go after those people and and, and really dry up the money sources. And that is a language that uh, the thugs that run Tehran understand. well.
1: Jason, thank you very much indeed. That is Jason Rezaian. Very many thanks to him for taking the time to speak to us here on The Daily. Now, Anders Berig Breivik, the far-right fanatic who killed 77 people in a bombing and shooting rampage in Norway in 2011, is suing the state, arguing that his prison conditions violate his human rights. His lawyers told a court that he was suffering from deep depression and no longer wanted to live as they launched a legal bid to lift his years of isolation in prison. Well, I'm joined now by Monocle's editorial intern and resident Norwegian, Gunnar Grunlid. Uh, Gunnar, many thanks for, for taking the time to come down all the way from the third floor uh, to speak Thank to us here in the basement. Uh, remind us of Breivik's crime.
3: Well, so in July 22nd of 2011, um, he committed what was the greatest act of violence in Norway since World War II. Um, he detonated a bomb outside of the government buildings in Oslo, uh, killing about eight people, and then went on to Uteya Island, which was an island where a youth camp for the Labour Party was being held. And he shot dead about 69 people, most of them teenagers.
1: And what are the conditions in which he's being held?
3: Well, funny enough, this has been a big discussion ever since he was he was first put in prison. Um, he's always lived in, in quite uh comparatively luxurious conditions uh at the moment he's living in a two-story complex which includes a gym a tv room where he has an xbox that he can play with uh, with the fellow guards um it has three armchairs in it there's a bathroom he has a yard where he can play basketball um and he has some uh budgies uh, some birds that he has he keeps his pets in a hallway in a birdcage um, after he requested to have a pet, he originally wanted, uh, and I quote, uh, I had asked for a dog, a goat or a miniature pig with which you can make empathetic contacts, which can be a good substitute for people in isolation. But he added that budgies are better than nothing. So,
1: <laughs> so I mean, his, his specific issue here is that he's kept in isolation, apart, of course, from the guards. But it's not the first time he's complained and threatened to take some sort of action. What else has he made a stand on?
3: Well, he made uh, the same lawsuit, essentially, back in 2016. And actually, at that time, he won the original lawsuit, uh, but it was appealed and overturned a year later, thankfully. Um, and then earlier than that, back in 2014, uh, he threatened to go on hunger strike if his PlayStation 2 was not upgraded to a <laughs> PlayStation 3, among a few other demands.
1: So, I mean, is this unusual for Norwegian prisons, Is the way in which he's being held?
3: His conditions aren't unusual per se in terms of what he has access to, but the unusual thing is the fact that he is in isolation. He, he's not among other prisoners, whereas at other prisoners, they might have access to all the same facilities, but they are more shared uh, between different prisoners. And as far as I know, I don't think prisoners usually get to have private pets and, and the like or their own private console Um, So if anything, he is given quite special conditions.
1: So let's just just pull back that lens a bit and look at Norwegian prisons generally and specifically actually coming down to to, to one on an island, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, I believe, slightly differently run.
3: Yeah, uh, so... I think one of the most unique prisons in Norway is a prison called Buste Island, uh, which is right off the coast of the Oslo fjord. Um prisoners here can they can apply uh, to Buste when they only have five years left of their sentence, and any type of offender from the lowest kind to the to the maximum security kind is allowed to is allowed to apply. And prisoners here basically live in communal houses with shared kitchens. um they can walk freely around the island for most of the day. There's a farm there where the prisoners can tend to the cows and the chickens and the sheep and the like, uh, grow vegetables and fruit. Um, there's shops like a bicycle repair shop or a woodworking shop uh, where they can work and, and they can they get educated. They can become graphic designers. You know, they, they become trained in all sorts of things to ready them for the world outside. They get a daily salary. Uh, and There's a small supermarket where they can choose what they want to buy and, and cook later.
1: So I'm totally going to commit a crime in Norway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds brilliant. Mm. Uh, I mean, these do obviously appear much more, these conditions appear much more luxurious than other prisons. I wonder how that's reflected in re-offending
3: rates. Yeah, well, Norway. Norway in general has one of the lowest reoffending rates um, in the world. It's at, at about twenty percent after two years. Um, I think what I read most recently is that in the UK it's fifty percent after, which is one year. Um, and at Buste Island, uh, that island in particular, uh, which of course has the most, it's the most luxurious prison I've ever heard of, but it actually has the lowest in all of Europe, which is at sixteen percent.
1: Quite, quite extraordinary. Gunnar, thank you very much indeed. That was Gunnar Grinlid. The 54th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum takes place from the 15th to the 19th of January in Davos, Switzerland. Over 100 governments, all major international organisations as well as civil society leaders, experts, youth representatives, social entrepreneurs and news outlets will be present, including a team from Monocle Radio. Well, Christy O'Grady is Monocle Radio's studio director and will be part of the group heading to Davos on Sunday. Christy, what is the purpose of Davos?
0: Uh, Okay, so Davos, its proper name is the World Economic Forum. And it was initially set up, and, well, its purpose still is, is committed to improving the world. So, essentially, it's a meeting of public and private sector companies individuals organizations uh that they generate they discuss ideas on yeah exactly that how to make the world better and it's it's a place where um, NGOs and uh, uh activists can meet people like um world leaders like the US president for example um or other influential business leaders and lobby them for things that they need, that we need, in order to have a better society and a better life.
1: And so how is it organised?
0: So it's quite interesting. It's quite a big event, but it's also quite a small event at the same time. It's held in Davos, which is why it's called Davos, which is a very small village in the mountains of Switzerland. Um, And you have the Congress Hotel, which is where the main keynote speeches happen. So that's where all your heads of state will be. They'll have their pre-prepared speeches and that's the things that you'll mostly see on the news. But then also you have this promenade, which is basically the village street, which goes all the way down from the Congress down to the train station. And there you have delegations from different countries or uh, companies, and they rent spaces there. And in those spaces, they hold their own talks, which can be attended by members of the public and members of the press. And those are places where, uh, again more ideas can be discussed it's more of a conversation uh, like a town hall um, and also it's places where you know uh, investors can go and people can network um, so it's, it's quite interesting um, and that's actually become quite a quite a big part of Davos mm. so what's the monocle
1: coverage plan
0: so we've got Quite a lot of coverage, actually, so buckle, <laughs> buckle your braces. We have at least one monocle minute every day, if not two, from tuesday to friday we 've got the daily broadcast live from Davos uh, Monday and Tuesday. We have the briefing. Live from Davos on Wednesday and Thursday, we'll also have lots of pre-recorded interviews that we'll be gathering throughout the week. Uh, they'll be dotted around our scheduling as well. Um, so there's there's plenty for our listeners and our readers online to to get their teeth into. So I
1: mean, for you as studio director, this is a massive technical challenge, isn't it?
0: yeah it is it is uh so we're bringing a fair bit of equipment. we've got our outside broadcast kit we've uh we're working with culture hub the, they've given us a space, a studio space, so we'll be uh set up there for the whole week Um, we've also got our individual recorders which we'll be taking out and about to grab people as we see them Um, so yeah it's a lot of hoping that the internet is stable
1: (laughs) (laughs) now you're going with our deputy head of radio tom webb and our senior foreign correspondent carlotta rubello I understand it's going to be absolutely freezing. How are the three of you preparing for the weather?
0: Yeah, so we had to go on a shopping trip on Monday to get thermals. It's going to be lows of minus 11 at some point, snowing. Um, So, yes, we've got thermals. uh, We're going to have snow tyres on our car. It's, uh, yeah, we'll be popsicles by the time we come back, I think. (laughs) Are you looking forward to it? I am. I am. I'm, I'm nervous for the challenge, but I'm really excited to, to get in there and be in the hubbub of everything.
1: Absolutely. Christy, thank you very much indeed. That's Christy O'Grady, who will be going to Davos with a couple of other Monocle Radio staffers, and they'll be bringing us amazing coverage from the World Economic Forum over the whole of next week. Ukraine is midway through the process of choosing who will represent the country at the 2024 Eurovision Song Contest. It's been a big deal there for many years and has produced three winners, but this year it's arguably more important than ever. Well, joining me to discuss this is Monocle researcher Julia Lassica, who's originally from Ukraine. Don't
4: get what you said.
1: Julia, welcome. Who was that we just heard from?
5: So that was Ukraine's 2023 entry to Eurovision, um, the band Tvorchi singing Heart of Steel. And why
1: is Eurovision so big in Ukraine?
5: Um, Well, for Ukrainians, it's very much a moment where they can really feel they're part of the European family. They can sort of showcase their cultural kind of prowess, um, their music, their song, their dance. Um, And it's just this really exciting moment when they can really show off to the rest of the continent um, and really feel like they're part of the European continent.
1: Who are this year's entries that are already through to the national final?
5: So there's an exciting mix of up-and-coming up talent, some bigger names um, like the Ukrainian rapper Lyona Aliona, who are through. So yeah, great mix. Um, the next song that we might listen to here is by Nazva, a band Slavic-English. It's quite a funny take um, that we might talk about. Agata
4: Pava. And my father's English. Uh, uh-uh. uh, uh-uh.
2: uh-uh. I have a soul, and my soul is English. Uh, uh-uh. uh, uh-uh. I speak, I speak, I I speak, I speak, I English. Oh,
1: I love I <laughs> what do they mean by Slavic English and how, how politicised is the use of language within the the songs themselves?
5: So I think this is definitely a song that's having a lot of fun. Um, they're sort of making fun of their kind of, yeah, as they said, Slavic English, sort of pigeon English. Um, but they're also kind of gesturing towards something which has been seen a lot, especially since the full-scale invasion. Ukrainian language is in many ways very flexible. It's been influenced by many different um, countries, especially Russia. So it's been very much... There have been moments where it has been very much Russified, um, but in recent years, Ukrainians have in a way to kind of walk, to go towards the Western world, to be a part of Europe. They've sort of anglicised the language as well. Of course, there is the sense of pure Ukrainian, you know, like a pure French or pure British. But then there are kind of the words that you drop in to show that you're looking towards a particular place or you're kind of leaning towards a particular culture. And here, obviously, they're kind of having fun that they're also part of Europe and they're kind of having fun with English mixed in with Ukrainian. And what other themes are emerging from the entrance? So there's also a really important theme of female empowerment which we can hear in this clip from Aliona Alona and Jerry Hales, Teresa and Maria. <laughs>
1: Another one that I think is just completely fabulous. Just tell us about the feminist theme and and actually what it is that they're singing about.
5: So they're referring to Mother Teresa and Mary, Mother of God, the Madonna. Um, And so obviously, perhaps for our Western ears, that might not seem like the empowerment of women. But for them, they're talking about the kind of ancestors who walk with us. This has been a really important theme especially since, again, full-scale invasion. Um, The ancestors who have been through the trials, and, you know, Ukrainian women are going through a lot of pain right now. Many of them have husbands, brothers, sons on the front line, have lost the men in their lives. Many of them have also gone to the front lines themselves. So their role is really changing. It began to change after the 2014 revolution. They started to become much more empowered in society, in civil society, in government, in the army. And this song really reflects that reality of the strength that they have. They're looking to these two kind of religious icons as their source of strength, but also as a source of inspiration, how they might keep going. It's Mm. very emotional.
1: So tell us about the history of
5: Eurovision in Ukraine. So the most recent winning entry was from 2022, which we can hear now, Kalush Orchestra's Stefania. (laughs)
1: Of on the theme that we've been hearing, or quite dark, a minor key used in a lot of them. So, so tell us more about that. What does that? What are the lyrics of that song mean?
5: So originally, that was written by the lead singer of Carlos Orchestra to um, towards for his mother, dedicated to his mother, and the um, lyrics are about Stefania, the name of his mother, and her hair turning grey, um, and her kind of being. Um, weighed down by the trials of life. But then after the full scale invasion in 2022, he rededicated the song to Ukraine. It's very fitting because Ukraine is personified, the country itself is personified in songs, in um, poetry, in literature, as the mother of, you know, um, so you will refer to Ukraine as your mother, and you will want to protect her as you would protect your mother. Um, And so there's, there's a lot of emotion in this, because At the same time, as kind of talking to his own mother. The lead singer is also referring to Ukraine, his country, the trials that she's going through. So there's a sort of subtle political message, but also on another level, just an expression of the human experience, of the pain that Ukrainians are going through. Seeing their country being destroyed in the way it is.
1: And is there a political angle to most of the music?
5: So, definitely. If we go back to 2016, that in that year, Ukraine won with Jamala, the singer, um, her entry in 1944. <laughs>
1: song was quite controversial when it came out. Tell us more.
5: So there was huge uproar in Russia at the time because, um, still then, I think in 2016 they were very much part of Eurovision, um, and they decried the kind of European, the Eurovision's um, committee's decision to allow this entry to be um, taken part in the um, the contest because. Um, it refers to, in 1944, the Crimean Tatars, the indigenous people of Crimea, the peninsula in the south of Ukraine. All of that indigenous population was deported into Russia's Far East, into other other countries in the Soviet Union. Um, And for Russians and very much for Ukrainians and especially Crimean Tatars. Listening to the song, you can't help but think exactly back to 2014 because since 2014, the annexation of Crimea, the Crimean Tatar population has again been going through many repressions. Much of the population has moved into mainland Ukraine to escape Russia's persecution. And so, of course, to the Western Um, ear, you can hear, of course, these Asiatic influences, you can hear in the music. It sounds really interesting, exotic, but actually to the Ukrainian, the Russian ear, they can very much hear the kind of parallels with what's going on right now in Crimea.
1: Mm. And of course, Jamala has gone on to become a a cultural ambassador for for Ukraine, a a champion of the country abroad. And indeed, that seems to be what happens to, to many of these singers.
5: Yeah, very much. So, you know, here for Eurovision, for us here in the UK and in the rest of Europe, it's sort of a fun kind of moment for party. And it is as much, you know, the same for Ukrainians. It's a moment for flamboyance, colour, fun. But it's also this moment where finally they get to step onto the stage, the European stage, and really show off what's going on in their country, because a lot has happened in the last 10 years. And their emotions and their feelings and bring these sort of subtle political messages in without being too overt, of course.
1: Julia Lassica, thank you very much indeed. Voters in Taiwan choose their new president on Saturday in a high-stakes election that carries huge geopolitical weight. With the threat of a Chinese invasion looming larger than ever, the self-governing island's upcoming vote has captured global attention. Journalist Adam Hancock filed this report from Taipei.
4: The island of Taiwan occupies a relatively small part of the world, with its land only just covering a larger area than Belgium. But when it comes to elections, Taiwan has a very big role to play. As a potential flashpoint in the global power struggle between China and the United States, Saturday's vote here will be closely watched in Beijing and Washington. China claims Taiwan as its own and hasn't ruled out taking the island with military force. Such a threat of invasion remains a major issue for voters. Here's Fang Yu Chen from Taiwan's Suzhou University.
2: The China factor is always the most salient issue in Taiwan, and the voters do concern about that. We can see from the public opinions that, yeah, a lot of people still think that the national security concern over uh, from China is the first
4: priority. Daily life in Taipei is not overshadowed by the regular Chinese military drills that take place in the Taiwan Strait. But this island is prepared. Walking down a street in the city centre, I pass a military recruitment office and an air defence shelter, all on the same block. For older voters like 66-year-old Ivy Chen, living with the threat of invasion is a factor of life.
5: We were just threatened too, too much, too often. So we have our own way to, to deal with this situation. If you ask many people, I think most of Taiwanese
4: are not panicked. Ivy doesn't vote in every election. Instead, she only heads to the ballot box if tensions with China are rising.
3: The people I
5: I want to vote, if I will go, will be like who keep the Taiwan independent status and keep communication
1: and dialogue with China.
4: At the other end of the age spectrum is 25-year-old student Yi Min Wang, He's about to vote in his second election, and remains concerned about Chinese President Xi Jinping's recent rhetoric towards Taiwan. Since
3: these threats are
4: only going to increase in the coming years, um, I want someone in office who would stand firmly for the values of democracy and freedom. Voters will choose their next president and legislators in the island's 113-seat parliament. The presidential race could see the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, secure a historic third term in power. Current Vice President William Lai is their candidate for office. He's a man who is not liked in Beijing due to his previous comments about Taiwan independence. The Chinese government also has a similar disdain for Lai's running mate, Bi Kim Xiao, given her close ties with the US. She was the former Taiwanese representative in Washington. Since rising into mainstream politics, Lai has looked to tone down his language around sensitive subjects. Instead, he's promised to take the same approach as outgoing president Tsai Ing-wen. I will maintain the status quo and continue to bring society together with the
1: framework of the Republic of China, Taiwan. Our door will always be open to engagements
5: with Beijing on the principles of equality and dignity.
4: The Kuomintang opposition party has tried to frame this election as a choice between war and peace. Historically, this party has favoured closer ties with Beijing and is warning that a victory for Lai could destabilise relations with China. The party's presidential candidate is the current mayor of New Taipei City, Ho Youyi. I will I am against Taiwanese independence. I am firmly opposed to Taiwanese independence. And correspondingly, I also oppose the one country, two systems policy. I firmly uphold Taiwan's democratic and free system. This is the middle path that Taiwan should take. Taiwan should tread this middle path. Therefore, within this middle path, Taiwan needs to be confident, self-reliant and self-strengthening. Whilst the two main parties continue to spar in the run-up to polling day, there is, unusually, an alternative option. Ko wen is a former surgeon turned politician. He's running with the Taiwan People's Party and has proved popular with younger voters after focusing on domestic issues rather than cross strait tensions. Here's 25-year-old voter Yi Min again. I don't think the main parties have done enough for younger voters. In this election cycle, you keep hearing about rising housing prices and stagnant wages. And young people are indeed frustrated by the fact that both parties have not done enough to address these concerns. While Taiwan doesn't allow polls to be published within 10 days of an election, the latest figures put the DPP's William Lai in the lead, though not by much. A third consecutive presidential term for a single party would be unprecedented. Ko Wenjie has been trailing in the polls, but his Taiwan People's Party may end up holding the balance of power in Parliament. Whatever direction Taiwanese people steer this territory in, it could have huge consequences for this region and beyond. For Monocle Radio, in Taipei, I'm Adam Hancock.
1: Thanks to Adam there. And that's all for this edition of The Monocle Daily. A big thanks also to my guests Jason Rezayan, Christy O'Grady, Gunnar Grunlud, and Julia Lassica. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Georgina Godwin here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time on Monday from Davos. Goodbye and thanks for listening.